topic of these comments is uh, the contact hypothesis, which is the main concern of Dixon, Durheim, and Treadle. Uh, I've given you this article for a few different reasons. For one, it uh, is related to uh, social psychology, a topic we've been uh, discussing now for a few weeks. And in particular, it deals with attitudes, attitude uh, formation, but particularly changes in prejudicial attitudes. It's an example of another in interventionist-oriented uh, group of psychologists. Uh, like Cosgrove and Flynn, uh, Dixon, Durham, and Treadle uh, think that psychology should be actively involved in making uh, changes, changes for uh, improvements in the world and towards greater social justice. And also like uh, Cosgrove and Flynn, uh, they give us an example of uh, arguments that are based in meaning systems rather than in biology. They're more on the normative science side as opposed to the causal science side. Uh, but unlike uh, Cosgrove and Flynn, they don't do a particular piece of research. Rather, they review the research done by other people, and particularly they take the conceptual basis <clears throat> of the various people that have put forward with respect to the contact hypothesis, and they argue about uh, these various conceptual or theoretical positions. So we say that this is an example of a paper dealing with uh, the theory of psychology and theoretical dialogue. In terms of language, I think uh, this is probably the most difficult paper that we deal with. They use a very uh, high-level vocabulary and a lot of unfamiliar psychological terms. However, I think the ideas themselves are relatively straightforward, and I'm hoping that with a bit of explanation that uh, you'll be able to read this paper without uh, too much frustration and get quite a lot out of it. Let's start with the idea of what the contact hypothesis actually uh, states. Uh, first of all, it's based in the idea that uh, prejudice and stereotypes are the uh, are a function of a lack of contact, uh, realistic contact, uh, with members of the groups towards which a person holds the stereotype or uh, prejudice. And the hypothesis is that uh, contact uh, between uh, an individual and members of the group towards which he or she holds this prejudice or stereotype will reduce uh, or even eliminate uh, that prejudiced way of uh, thinking. So it's about attitude. It's about uh, prejudicial attitudes and the reduction of those attitudes through contact with the group towards which the prejudicial attitude is held. Uh, so it involves uh, desegregation, a term that's uh, often used in the United States to refer to uh, black-white relationships uh, prior to the time of civil rights movement in the United States. Uh, there was a forced segregation in many states of the U.S. And so the contact hypothesis was very uh, relevant uh, to arguments in court cases about uh, desegregation. It's not only the United States where this is relevant. The authors of the article, two of them are from South Africa, another one from Britain. It starts off with a very compelling story about uh, one urban area uh, in Britain. Uh, prejudice reduction, uh, desegregation, stereotypes. Of course, prejudice and uh, stereotypes can be held in a wide variety of situations with respect to a wide variety of groups by a wide variety of people. 
among the contexts that have been studied, of course, are race relations, particularly black-white relations in uh, the United States and in South Africa. Uh, but uh, other contexts include uh, race-ethnic groups, for instance, uh, French-Canadian, English-Canadian bias, uh, homosexual, heterosexual uh, interactions, uh, retardation, disabilities, homelessness, Aboriginal European interaction, any situation where there are stereotypes and prejudices uh, about uh, one or both of the groups involved. And in addition, uh, the contact that one could imagine to try to reduce uh, these prejudices could take place in quite a wide variety of contexts. Uh, the person to whom credit is given for initiating the contact hypothesis, Gordon Alport, Mogadam has mentioned Gordon Alport before uh, a couple times in the personality uh, chapter about personality traits and about the ideographic approach uh, to study of personality. And he's also mentioned in the chapter on the self, uh, his idea of uh, the importance of the notion of becoming something similar to the humanistic uh, notion of growth, growth potential. Alport uh, didn't think that just any kind of contact uh, between people or between groups would result in uh, prejudice reduction. He thought that there were some particular conditions that would have to be uh, met. And this article uh, by Dixon and his colleagues is basically a, a criticism of the the rut that they feel that the people who study uh, the contact hypothesis have gotten into by searching for more and more of these uh, conditions that are necessary to be met in order for contact between groups to have an effect on prejudice. A few of the ones that uh, Allport emphasized were that uh, in order for the contact to be successful in reducing prejudice, the contact should occur in a way that's institutionally sanctioned. And it should be perceived as between equals now. One group is not superior to the other uh, in any way. Uh, the others that are listed here um, are all the results of research that's been done uh, since the Allport's time. And I think most of them probably make a good deal of sense that if the contact is in a situation where people uh, actually get to know each other and there's an opportunity uh, for friendship, to, to really form a friendship, it's much more likely uh, to result in prejudice reduction, for example. And you should go through these uh, this list and um, sort of satisfy yourself that they're all sensible uh, conditions that would have to be met. When we studied the concept of displaced aggression, uh, Mogadam made some mention, and I made some mention of the Roberts Cave uh, research by Sharif, uh, this was not really an attempt to deal with prejudice uh, reduction per se. The groups, the kids were all white uh, kids at a summer camp, uh, but they were artificially made to have uh, an antagonism toward uh, one another. Uh, but the solution that uh, they tested out to see if they could bring these kids together fit very much with the uh, ideal conditions of the contact hypothesis uh, investigations. Uh, they put the kids uh, to work on solving a problem uh, jointly. They had to work together. And so they were together frequently with opportunity for contact that would allow real friendship and so forth. 
some of you may have participated in programs uh, that were designed with some of these contact hypothesis ideas in mind. Uh, for instance, it's common for schools to run uh, exchange programs uh, with Quebec or with uh, various countries around the world. Also, some churches try to run uh, ecumenical uh, sorts of groups where they get together with uh, groups from other churches and uh, create situations that allow people to interact uh, positively with one another. While Dixon has a number of criticisms of the contact hypothesis, uh, he's he prefaces it all by saying that a great deal of excellent work has been done. A number of projects of great value uh, have come out of the work on the contact hypothesis. Uh, in general, he says that uh, contact of the sort that's specified by these uh, ideal conditions is likely to prompt individuals who are participating in these programs to some reevaluation of their preconceptions, their prejudgments, and that there is a great deal of possible benefit and has in fact been a great deal of benefit from programs organized around these ideas. But uh, Dixon and his colleagues have a number of problems that are associated with what uh, he's calling here the optimal contact strategy. Uh, what he's referring to, the strategy means a strategy for prejudice reduction. Uh, contact as in contact hypothesis. There's a contact strategy, but the optimal contact strategy refers to the fact that let's try to find a full list of the ideal conditions that will uh, that we can put into place that will allow the contact uh, strategy to work. But let's run through some of the criticisms uh, that this group of psychologists makes. Uh, one is, uh, they say that uh, there's a strong individualist orientation to this work on the contact uh, hypothesis. Uh, I think this is uh, obvious in the way that the hypothesis is phrased. It's considered that the prejudice lies within a single individual and that the obstacles to a more integration and a more uh, productive interaction among people is in this uh, individual-based uh, uh, prejudice. The problem that uh, Dixon and his colleagues have with this is that it leads one to neglect the broader systemic features uh, that lead to uh, prejudicial interaction and segregated uh, situations. Uh, this should sound familiar. The Cosgrove and Flynn uh, study pointing to exactly the same thing, that the individualist orientation of of uh, standard psychology neglects broad systemic uh, features of society uh, that in many cases uh, are highly problematic. Another aspect uh, that uh, Dixon uh, criticizes is uh, what he calls the utopian nature of the optimal contract strategy. Uh, and what he means by this is that it's utopian to believe that you'll be able to create a society in which all of these ideal conditions uh, will be will hold. They point out that um, much of the work on the contact hypothesis has been done in laboratory situations. Uh, people brought together in a laboratory asked to interact in particular ways. These ideal conditions can be easily varied in a laboratory setting so that there's more or less of the various conditions. Uh, after people have interacted, they can ask, be asked to fill out questionnaires 
uh, about uh, the situation and about their uh, feelings, their emotions, their attitudes towards the people with whom they participated and so forth. But he says uh, there's a question of ecological validity here. You remember this concept from the very beginning of the course, and Mogadam raised this issue about much of the laboratory research in psychology. He says it may be very valid. Uh, it works in exactly the way that uh, we expect inside the laboratory, but it doesn't match the conditions that actually uh, occur in the natural environment. And Dixon is saying that the contact hypothesis research lacks to a considerable extent ecological validity because of its neglect of the nature of actual contact between uh, groups that hold stereotypes of each other uh, in, in natural situations. So Dixon's uh, suggestion is that we need to have a shift of focus. If we want to understand how we can create these ideal conditions for reducing prejudice, then we have to give more importance to how people make sense of the social processes involved in actual contact in their actual day-to-day -day, uh, lives. Um, he's saying that we have to get in to understand, appreciate the meaning systems of the people themselves, the people who are holding the stereotypes, the people uh, for whom the stereotypes are being held about them, and what sense they make of these and of the contact that takes place. If we can understand how the participants construct uh, the meaning of the contact uh, that they undergo, then we'll be uh, better able to see the limitations uh, that we face, the obstacles that we face in creating uh, better conditions, as well as we'll be able to have a more insight to where the opportunities are for the creating of prejudice-reducing uh, contact. One of his concerns here, then, is that uh, participants in, these, in, in this research and people who could potentially participate in studies of the contact hypothesis don't necessarily conceptualize uh, the contact in the same way as the researchers do. So, for instance, on page 701 of the article, uh, he gives a list of some typical uh, Likert uh, items that might be given to uh, people in a study. And they ask about, uh, is the contact you have with Muslim people perceived as equal? Is the contact uh, competitive or cooperative? Is the contact superficial uh, or intimate uh, in nature? Well, these terms, uh, equal, competitive, cooperative, superficial, intimate, those may not be the terms in which uh, the participants in the research understand uh, the contact. And it's certainly probably not the, the terms within which people in their everyday contact uh, in their neighborhoods, their employment and so forth, uh, understand the contact that they have with members of other groups about which they hold uh, stereotypes. Uh, for instance, in the article, Dixon tells us that a group of whites in South Africa looking at a group of blacks would come into their neighborhood, uh, describe them as foreign, intrusive, squatters, uh, these very different uh, terminology. On page 702, Dixon says, what was important about residents' constructions of contact in this city then was not merely that they had failed to match the optimal conditions, and accordingly led to heightened levels of individual prejudice. They also 
we produced a collective framework of interpretation through which the territorial entitlements of the advantaged group could be reasserted, the existing systems of privilege cast as reasonable and legitimate in the process of desegregation resisted. So the terms that the white residents are using here have a collective nature about them. The group as a whole is building fences, uh, putting up trees, shrubs, uh, engaging in a variety of collective uh, activities that sustain uh, the privilege uh, of the group. Dixon's point is that we have to understand this kind of conceptualization of the contact that the whites are having with the black here in order to get a better sense of how to adapt that contact, how to work with it, how to change it in a way that will be productive rather than destructive. So he says we ha we're going beyond the rehabilitation of prejudiced individuals. This collective business is not just a matter of individuals holding irrational stereotypes and attitudes. There's a collective holding uh, of these stereotypes and attitudes. And the contact that people uh, in these groups have uh, with groups about whom they hold these stereotypes have broader contacts than have broader consequences uh, than just their individual uh, attitudes. He says that the prejudice has uh, collective institutionalized uh, bases. A really interesting parallel he gives to help us understand this. He talks, says, think about sexism. Uh, many males have highly prejudicial sexist attitudes towards females, but they're in regular contact with females. It's not uh, the contact with the females they have does not come from prejudice attitudes created by the interaction uh, directly with the uh, with the women. The sexism is in a broader collective. It's within the culture in which we live, and the male is participating within that culture, and his attitudes are supported by groups of people, by institutions. Uh, for instance, the media, in a variety of ways, uh, supports uh, this prejudicial attitude and contact by itself is not going to be sufficient uh, to reduce that uh, sexist, uh, those sexist attitudes. So again, what Dixon uh, and his colleagues seem to be saying is if we can understand better the way that people conceptualize the contact that they do have in their everyday lives with the group against which they have certain prejudices, then we can see better uh, the entry points to make changes. We can see better the limitations that we face or the obstacles, and we can see better the opportunities for modifying that contact in positive directions. So Dixon gives us uh, examples of studies uh, of everyday contact between groups. He refers to these as giving thick uh, descriptions. This is a term that's often used with respect to qualitative uh, research. Uh, case studies, uh, examples where people in ideographic uh, language go and try to really understand a, one situation in a great deal of depth. Uh, he gives us a number of examples, uh, all in this line for trying to understand where the opportunities for meaningful social change, where the impediments to it lie. 
he talks about uh, his research on uh, beaches in South Africa and uh, in stores with the surveillance system in uh, North American uh, stores. On the beaches, he talks about certain kinds of practices that uh, led to a segregation within the integrated uh, beach. Uh, within the stores in North America, he talks about uh, the ways in which members of particular groups are uh, sorted out for uh, extra security surveillance and the actions that people from uh, these groups would take to try to avoid having race be the dimension along which they were uh, viewed and treated uh, within the stores. One phenomena that emerges from these studies is the idea of resegregation, that people uh, in situations where contact is expected uh, manage to find ways to resegregate uh, themselves. And Dixon's point in mentioning this is that Standard studies of the contact hypothesis in laboratory settings miss this resegregation phenomenon. It's an important one, and we need to understand how it occurs and why it occurs if we're going to understand how to create uh, prejudice reduction uh, situations. Dixon says that key to our understanding of these everyday contact uh, between groups are what he calls emic analyses, E-M-I-C. This is a term in uh, social science that means an analysis from the individual participant's point of view as opposed to the, from the researcher's uh, point of view. The Likert scales that uh, I mentioned before in the article are an example of uh, an etic as opposed to an emic analysis. They're from the uh, researcher's point of view what the situation is like. On page uh, 706, Dixon points to the gulf between contact as it is operationalized in the psychological literature and contact as it is understood, evaluated, and practiced in ordinary life. Uh, to illustrate this, he gives us a particularly interesting example of uh, two Muslim groups in Britain who conceptualize who conceptualize uh, interaction with non-Muslim English uh, groups in very different uh, ways. And uh, this should remind you of the discussion in the height uh, material uh, this week. On the one hand, the one group conceptualizes the contact uh, with the, the non-Muslims as opportunity for dialogue and opportunity to practice uh, their Muslim uh, views, nature, identity. And they see it as uh, absolutely essential uh, to, to seek out uh, contact and to uh, show themselves well and explain themselves well and engage in dialogue uh, with others who may not believe the same uh, or understand them very well. On the other hand, you have another group that sees uh, contact with uh, people outside the group as in terms of purity and a violation uh, of purity. So we have, it's like uh, wearing filters. The one has a dialogue filter, the other has a purity filter, uh, and as a result, understand contact in very different ways. Well, again, uh, this is an example of an emic analysis. It's talking to the people involved, trying to understand how they view the contact from their particular 
position. And it's the kind of thing that Dixon is saying we need to do if we're going to understand how to use contact in productive uh, fashion. Dixon uh, suggests that uh, we need more comparative uh, analyses of contact uh, situations. He gives a couple of examples. Uh, one from the U.S. he calls white flight. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this term before, but the idea is that you have white neighborhoods in cities within the U.S. Uh, a black family buys a home within the neighborhood. And then the question is whether uh, the whites will uh, panic and begin to uh, leave the neighborhood and the neighborhood will eventually become an all-black neighborhood or whether uh, the whites will not panic, will stay in the neighborhood, will become a, an integrated neighborhood. Uh, Dixon is suggesting we need to understand the difference between the situations where the first happens, where you have white flight, and the second, uh, where you don't. Uh, what is it that's different in the contact in the two situations uh, that uh, leads to white flight or, or not? Uh, he says that uh, the one piece of research that uh, he knows of that's uh, been done in this uh, area points to the idea that what matters to the, uh, the whites who are already living in the neighborhood is whether they have an expectation that the meaning of this contact will be a deterioration of the quality of life uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, for instance, in some cities in the U.S., uh, black neighborhoods don't receive the same uh, municipal services in a variety of ways. Uh, schools are a, a good example. And if the uh, people in the white neighborhood believe that uh, the entrance of blacks into that neighborhood is going to mean a deterioration in the services of the city, of the school, uh, and so forth, then they're likely to flee. But this gives... Uh, Dixon says this gives good information about how to promote a kind of contact that will uh, maintain integration and lead to the possible reductions of prejudice. So, for instance, cities uh, can take uh, steps to make sure that their services are uh, equitable across the city as a whole and that everybody knows that and then knows that they will stay that way and there's much less uh, likelihood that people will run uh, from one area to another in search of uh, maintaining high level of services. And Dixon points to this as another example of how it's not necessarily the individual person's stereotypical viewpoint that's at the heart of the problem, that again, there can be systemic aspects to the situation. Uh, also in the line of comparative analyses, uh, a point that he makes is that much of the research on the contact hypothesis has been aimed at reducing uh, racism uh, and been aimed at reducing prejudice in whites. And so the focus has been on white attitudes. But he says contact may be very differently interpreted uh, by whites and blacks when it's race that's involved, uh, but by any uh, two groups coming together. We can't say for sure that the interpretation of the contact is going to be the same for both groups. An example he gives here is the case of uh, preteen, teenage uh, African-American girls uh, in a setting with white girls 
where there are indeed multiple opportunities for developing of friendships and everybody involved is in fact eager to develop uh, friendships. But he says the problem comes when these settings within which this occurs, for instance, a school in a predominantly white area uh, of a city, that uh, the institutional structures may be very white in its nature. This is what he means by a, a normative environment that tacitly valorizes white culture. So in situations like that, he, he says, thus for African-American girls, contact involves a struggle for social acceptance in which their physical appearance, their sexuality, their economic status, and even their style of speech may be subtly coded as deviant. He finishes that section with a very powerful quotation from Steve Biko, and uh, I've given you a, a link. You can read more about Steve Biko if you don't uh, know who he is, uh, an anti-apartheid uh, activist in uh, South Africa. He writes, Does this mean that I am against integration? If by integration you understand a breakthrough into white society by blacks, an assimilation and acceptance of blacks into an already established set of norms and codes of behavior set up by and maintained by whites, then yes, I am against it. If contact means the loss of one's culture, then it seems perfectly understandable that people are going to resist. Well, I'll stop there uh, for now, but uh, we'll return to some of these same ideas next week when we read uh, Ogunem's chapter on multicultural uh, psychology.